0: Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex.
1: Hello, Dr. Jana. We're back. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Is it have and... we passed the point where you can wish Happy New Year a couple weeks after? I Is... mean, I don't
0: know. Okay. Uh, This is the first time we're seeing each other since, so I think it's fair.
1: All right. Happy New Year. It
0: it, it qualifies. Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year. Everyone. (laughs) Happy New Year to all our listeners. Welcome back to uh, 2019 and the Science Sex Podcast. And it's kind of fitting today's guest that we're going to have on the program because during the holidays, maybe even during your New Year's Eve celebration, I know, Mm -hmm. Dr. Johnny, you don't do the Christmas thing, but maybe Mm -hmm. during the New Year's Eve celebration, you know, they might have had a, you know, we may have, you know, we had a few drinks, a few drinks Mm -hmm. and maybe had sex. Along the way, too? After after, those drinks. After those drinks. In the middle of those drinks. In the middle. Before,
0: before, after. Before, during, after,
1: (laughs) don't matter. But that subject, matter, Uh segues into our guest today, correct?
0: Yes, it does. Yes. So we have Dr. Michelle Druin from Purdue University on the show, and she did a fascinating study together with another researcher doing a lot of research in this area of alcohol and consent and sexual assault, Dr. Kirsten Jaskowski. And what they did is go to bars- and get drunk people to do a study where they ask them about how intoxicated are they and are they capable of consenting to, to sex and also do they think their friends are capable of consenting to sex in that moment.
1: Wow, so we've done like fifty over 50 episodes. This is the first time I'm hearing about a study that first of all takes place at a bar, but mm-hmm. second of all, while people are living their lives, it's not like they're walking <laughs> into a university or going into yep. a lab room or conference room. Mm-hmm. This is happening right there at the bar.
0: Yeah, it's called a naturalistic study. Okay, right? it's sort of a type of study where you go into wherever people are doing whatever the, the, it is that they're doing, as opposed to you taking them out of that environment. And so, a naturalistic study, and um, yeah, it's a really Interesting type of methodology and I'm just so excited to have someone on the show talking to us about it.
1: Alright, so before we get Dr. Drew in on the phone, she's gonna call up here in a second. We should we should mention that we you know you do have a Patreon page and we love your support because we do this show for the love of the game. As <laughs> Michael Jordan once said. You don't know who that is, Who's a basketball player. I know. <laughs> but we do this for a love game, and we do not get paid for the podcast and a lot of the other projects we do. So we're always looking for support, and we do have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Jana. Yes. And there's sort of levels of way people can mm-hmm. contribute as to yeah. whatever fits their budget, right?
0: Yeah, whatever fits your budget. If you can afford as much as a you know a latte at a coffee shop. Throw us that same amount our way or throw us more. Yeah, sure. Any amount. If you, if you enjoy the show, if this is something that provides information, education and uh, entertainment, entertainment, That's hopefully key. Yeah. as well. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> please consider going to patreon.com slash Dr. Jana and supporting our work.
1: And if you can't find that there, just go to the science of sex All the information, all the links to our guests, our past episodes are
0: there. Mm-hmm. But
1: with, without further ado, Dr. Jana, please tell us about today's guest.
0: Dr. Michelle Druin is a professor at Purdue University. She's a developmental psychologist with a PhD from University of Oxford, and she's an internationally recognized speaker on sexuality, technology, and relationships, including online relationships, social media, and sexting. Doctor Druin's research on sexuality, social media, and mobile phone addiction has attracted international attention, and she regularly does interviews for television, radio, newspapers, and magazines. Her TEDx talk on online love and infidelity has more than one hundred and fifty thousand views. Dr. Druin also serves as an expert witness for sexuality, social media, and online relationship cases. Dr. Michelle Druin, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I, I was really excited when I saw this paper, and uh, it's one of those rare papers when I was like reading, and I'm like, I can't wait to see what happens. Like, <laughs> Page turner. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of was a little bit.
2: Page Turner, you don't often hear that. Yeah, no, no, not
0: with with uh, research uh, mm-hmm. articles that are you know 15 pages long, and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. come on, why couldn't this be eight pages long? But yeah, with mm-hmm. this one,
1: everyone knows Dr. Druin is the John Grisham of, <laughs> of research. Everyone knows that, Druin, right?
0: <laughs> Thanks, anyway. <Yeah. laughs> Seems like I should
2: harness that for you know something better than these <laughs> academic
3: papers.
2: <but laughs> well, Good it's to never that too it's late. Been. Yeah,
3: yeah,
0: <laughs> no, but it, it's also an interesting, a, a really interesting topic that we haven't talked much about on the Science of Sick podcast yet uh, around alcohol and consent, and it is something that is so relevant to where we are at today in society, Absolutely. especially post-holiday mm-hmm. season when uh, lots of people were probably consuming some alcohol yes. some alcohol and regretting some things
1: they said or did over the holiday <laughs> break, sure.
0: Uh, but before we kind of get into uh, the, the weeds of it, uh, tell us, how did you end up studying this? Based on your bio, this is not quite your
1: bag maybe, as as Austin Powers (laughs) said? Yeah,
0: you you study other things that are also really interesting that you, you can tell us a little bit about.
2: Yeah, well, this is directly related to my expert witness work, so I work as an expert witness for usually the government, but also civilian cases, and some of the Most common cases that will come up in the military are sex assault cases, and that's widely publicized. So one of the things I got really interested in is the idea of both people being really intoxicated when they went into these sexual interchanges or sexual episodes and how usually it was only the man who is getting charged as the perpetrator. And so it made me really start looking into how aware are these men? I mean, are they drunk themselves? How good are they at assessing their partner's level of intoxication? And how much is that factoring into their perceptions of whether or not their partner is consenting? So yeah, I mean, you mostly have, although the well, we'll get into this later, but the rates of uh, prevalence for sexual assault are higher among women, but men still do get assaulted as well. So I had a real interest in trying to disentangle the consent aspect from this sexual assault and trying to really see what role this intoxication played in that.
0: Just to kind of set the stage for, for people, what are the rates that we're talking about? I know we've been having a kind of a big, I don't know, debate over the last couple of years, of what are the actual numbers of sexual assault and rape and, and other forms of sexual victimizations. What does it look like we're talking about based on all of, the, all of these studies and Yeah, so,
2: I mean, the rates vary, but in terms of just sexual assault or, or rape, we have about one in five women in the United States say they've been raped, um, and then about a third have experienced other types of sexual violence in their lifetimes. And then among men, uh, you have about 1.5 incidents experiencing rape in their lifetime, and about 17% of experiencing other types of sexual violence. But rates vary based on your study, so this would have been from the 2017 National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey.
0: Is that completed rape or attempted rape as well?
2: Yeah, so that's where your statistics might vary widely. These would be actual reports via the survey. So completed acts of sexual violence or completed acts of rape.
0: That's pretty high.
2: Yeah, one in five, one in three among women. And college campuses, uh, it seems to be a really big problem on college campuses. Um, college women report high levels of of rape and sexual assault and Dr. Jaskowski is actually a much better expert than I am to talk about all of that.
0: Talking about alcohol, you know, how how big of a role does alcohol play? Do we do we have information? Do we have some data on what percentage of sexual assault cases implicate some level of alcohol use?
2: Yes, so
0: about half,
2: which is pretty striking. Half. So about half of all victims would say that they've been they've consumed alcohol prior to the assault, and about half of all perpetrators, it's about the same. Those range pretty widely from about you know like one third to three fourths of them had report consuming it, and and the same with uh, the victims in terms of how many had consumed. So it ranges from about one third to three fourths say that they've consumed alcohol, and mm-hmm. this alcohol consumption seems to co-occur. So that, you know, both the victims and the perpetrators are often reporting having consumed alcohol prior to the incident. Interestingly, and relevant to our study, so are the bystanders, because a lot Hmm. of times uh, these sexual assaults stem from these social gatherings where alcohol is a part of the social activity.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: I guess that's where you get the tricky area to the consuming and the intoxication, right? Because consuming alcohol can mean just having a sip of wine, right? Or just having one beer so. They still may have the wits, especially the attackers may have their wits about them, but they just happen to have drank a beer beforehand, right?
2: Yeah, that's that's tough. That does bring in some ambiguity and is usually a big part of the defense of people who have been accused of sexual assault. You know, how drunk were they mm. Um and also you, you try to figure out with the victims, how drunk were they? Because if someone's incapacitated, then they are not able to consent. So if they were very drunk, then that is definitely a big red flag.
0: Right, but how drunk is too drunk? And and, how drunk is too
2: drunk? See, that is the question, (laughs) and it's it's really it's
0: really difficult.
2: And we didn't answer it in this paper. (laughs) Right, right.
0: (laughs) That that question was not answered. Right, and I mean, you tried to get at some of these things, but uh, and we can circle back to that to that question toward the end of of how to even grapple with making those decisions which are obviously not, not easy decisions to make. But you mentioned in your paper that unlike all this research that we have on alcohol and sexual assault, like as you were saying, you know what percentage of people have been drinking, and perps and v- victims, uh, there's not a lot of research on alcohol and sexual consent specifically, sort of on the, on the flip side of the coin of how much alcohol is impacting people's ability to consent or how much they think it affects their ability to consent and, and so on. Um, why is that? Why have we not seen much of that research?
2: It's really hard to measure consent and you you certainly would have trouble doing that naturalistically. So I think that's one of the problems. I mean, with something like sexual assault, you have reports of it, and you can correlate those reports with reports of intoxication, whereas, you know, consent is a still kind of fluid concept, although I think we're adding some legs to it by promoting affirmative consent and this idea that, you know, you need to say yes. It's still a little bit more amorphous. And, again, Dr. Jaskowski has done a really great job of trying to Categorize what exactly does consent mean to people. So I think a big part of why it has been studied is because it means a lot of different things to different people. And so the first thing we needed to do in this literature is actually define what is consent.
3: <laughs> mm. And
2: I think we're making strides in defining consent. And now once we've defined it, now we can have people look back and say, okay, in your sexual episodes, how how well did you convey this consent? Mm. And uh, so I think I think that that's probably why. Because it's, it's possibly not as concrete, and it hasn't been very well defined in the literature until recent years.
0: And where do we stand with that now? How, how are we defining sexual consent? Well, there are
2: a lot of different ways. I know the you know, affirmative consent promotion programs have really driven forward this idea that consent is saying yes although what Dr. Jaskowski has found with her research is that a lot of people communicate consent in more subtle ways. So uh, a lot of people can communicate consent, for example, by just not saying no. Mm-hmm. And if you think about, you know, your last sexual episode, now I'm, I've been married for 21 <laughs> years. So, um, I, I don't, me saying yes is, is not really a part of my sex life anymore. Like mm-hmm. this, if I would say no, then that would have some kind of meaning. And I think many people, uh, And especially those probably in really committed relationships operate on the same principle that um, as long as I'm not saying no or protesting. So silence is one way that people communicate Mm -hmm. consent, according to Dr. Jaskowski's research. Um, Also, you know, moaning or expressing pleasure or saying, you know, saying yes, like I like that Mm -hmm. or uh, also reacting back to people.
1: Body language, right?
2: Yeah. Body language, Mm -hmm. like the way I'm moving my body. Am I touching you? Am I pulling you towards me? You know, there are a lot of ways to express Mm -hmm. it. And just saying yes is not the only way.
0: Yeah. And that complicates matters. And and sometimes people can say yes and still feel under pressure to say that. Yes. Or or whether it's explicit pressure or kind of implicit pressure that they're putting on the, on themselves and yet you can have all these very nonverbal or completely nonverbal expressions that are super clear and ent- enthusiastic and so yeah this whole like should it all be verbal versus can we incorporate nonverbal signals and it's so complicated yeah. if only we had yeah. this discussion
1: in 2018 right that never came <laughs> up right <laughs>
2: Yeah. And Dr. Jaskowski has actually separated these out into internal and external consent. So, you know, internal consent would be your feelings of being comfortable, your feelings of feeling safe. And then external consent would be like, you know, you're touching any kind of direct nonverbal behavior that you might do. So she's actually separated out these constructs. And I think that that's a really important thing because what you said is true. And it actually dovetails nicely with some of my other research, which I know isn't the topic of the show, but I examined um, unwanted but consensual sexting. Mm. So when people were sending pictures, even though they didn't want to, and it occurs, you know, pretty frequently where people are saying, I did it, I didn't really want to do it, but I did it. And unwanted but consensual sex is also pretty common. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you might be feeling, I'm not very comfortable, I don't really want this, but you do it anyway. And this is a kind of a different path than the way sexuality was originally conceptualized, you know, that either it's wanted and you say yes. Right. Or it's unwanted, and you say no. I mean, this adds a layer of complexity, which is sometimes we engage in sexual activity even though we don't want to.
0: Yeah, and and the the consent piece is really what you express, because people don't have a magic you know crystal ball to know what's in your head right. unless you express that in some outwardly behavior, whether non nonverbal or verbal, and that expression may or may not express what is. In your subjective experience of wantedness, and yes, that's
2: exactly right. Yeah, yeah. so it adds, and it's like again another layer of complexity.
0: Yeah, and then add to that the fact that you know we like to portray sex as either wanted or unwanted very clearly, even in your own head. Not not the outward expressions of it, but that you know you either are are, are a yes or a no in your head, where so often we know that people are ambivalent. They have both reasons to want it and yeah. not to want it. And they're conflicted about whether they want this or not right now. Yeah. And that can change <laughs>
2: during right, exactly. the course of during, the right. act. <laughs> you know, like I, I do want it. Actually, this is not great. I don't want it. And then, <laughs> oh, I guess it feels okay. I guess I do. You know, but <laughs> right. we, I always say the hallmark of humanity is our adaptability. And that's a very activated process. We are always adapting. Mm. So, Yeah, we might even flip within the same sexual episode several times between that want
0: and non-want. Oh, so complicated. And then throw into Mm. the mix some alcohol. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And what do we know from past research in terms of what alcohol does and how it affects people's ability to consent and how, and kind of to take it a a little bit back to the sexual assault stuff, why is it so frequently associated with uh, leading or, or, or contributing to sexual assault? What are some of the things that it does to people, both on the victim and the perpetrator side, to increase these rates? I mean,
2: alcohol can make a victim just not as aware of what's going on. They're maybe not picking up cues that the other person is trying to lead them into a situation that they might, in other, when they're you know, not intoxicated, see as unsafe they maybe have this alcohol myopia, where they're only focusing on a couple of details and not really paying attention to the
0: rest. Myopia. Um, I'm seeing Joe. No, being I mean like, singular, huh? right?
1: Myopic. Of-
0: it's it's narrow. Narrow. Yeah. yeah. Narrow view. I have Yeah. It.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Drew, every once in a while, John will call out the faces I make. So. Well, that tells
0: me. I like that. Yeah, you know, the, the faces he makes make tells me whether there's a you know word that. He doesn't necessarily understand our concept that that means a lot of other people are probably not going to understand because they're not psychologists who've been. You know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I have a terrible poker face, Dr. Drew. No, but I need, poker, I need that. I
0: need your terrible perfect. poker yeah, face. Yeah, give me,
2: give me those cues when I need explain yes. more. This is perfect. Yeah. So, I, I mean, overall, it, it affects our decision making. It affects our our executive function overall. Our judgment might be affected. This is why a lot of people report doing things that they wouldn't have. Done had they not been intoxicated, because our judgment can really get affected. It might also lower inhibitions. And then, in, in terms of the perpetrators, mm. it might—if you think of it in a really innocent way—they might be also misinterpreting cues so that they think that the person is actually really being flirtatious with them when mm. they're not. Or they are—they could be actually more nefarious and purposely use alcohol to you know cloud the, the victims judgment and get them into situations that are possibly unsafe but alcohol can affect both the victim and the perpetrator in a variety of ways that makes these situations a little bit more likely to happen
0: I mean these situations, especially when it comes to non long term relationships, right mm-hmm. when they're new people or hookups or that sort of thing, they're very often ambiguous situations you You're not sure what's happening, right. you're not sure what the other person wants. there's no clear communication, and so we as humans tend to it's it's a natural kind of human response to um, project our own desires and hopes, and alcohol just adds to that, emphasizes yeah. that, and makes us feel like, oh yeah. What we want, Mm -hmm. the other person probably wants that too. Yeah,
2: Yeah, it makes these cues that you're picking out, you're extracting the ones that are most salient to, this person wants what I want. (laughs) Right, right. You're ignoring the
0: no's. You're not even perceiving the the signs that might be a no, and you're just playing up the signs that it might be a yes. And as you were saying, that's even if you're not being kind of malicious, even if you're just like this naive, I'm just excited yeah "Yeah, i just want to get laid and i think she wants that too and then Mm -hmm. yeah and so one thing that we don't really know like a lot of the stuff we've studied a lot around alcohol and what some of these things that it does but as as you were saying in your paper one thing that we don't really know is how alcohol affects people's own perceptions of whether they're capable of consenting right And maybe whether their friends are capable of consenting even though they have been drinking to some extent. Um, yes, that's right. So what were you thinking you were going to find? Did you think people, <laughs> drunk people were going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good or no, I probably am not good. Someone should stop me from doing mm-hmm. this. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, considering the extent to which people report engaging in sexual activity when they are intoxicated, we expected possibly that people would say, I think I'm able to do it. But uh, because there wasn't really a lot of research on it, you know, we phrased these as research questions rather than hypotheses because we we didn't really have a, a clear theory or any hypotheses about whether or not people would think they were able to consent. We know that intoxication and sexual activity often co-occur, but we didn't know necessarily that these people thought they were able to consent, and that's why the sexual activity occurred. Mm. We just knew that the activity was occurring along with this intoxication. So this is really what we designed the study to assess.
0: And you're also looking at whether intoxicated people considered their friends' ability to consent, and uh, you're looking at this because of of this model of third-party bystander intervention as a potential model for intervening in sexual assault or potential sexual assault cases. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the bystander model,
2: which is being promoted as a way to prevent sexual assault, is based on this idea that people who are watching these situations might be able to intervene on behalf of their friends and say, hey, a sexual assault might be happening here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you may not want to go with this guy or you may not want to go home with this girl. And it's, I love the idea because it's, it's making the most of the protectiveness of, of a social support network and often. Sometimes when people are out, you know, in these social gatherings, they're with friends. Right. They're not alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So make use of your social support network. And this is something that, as I said, is being advertised as one of the main prevention initiatives. And has even been adopted by the military as as one of their their sexual assault prevention mm. initiatives. you know, just make sure watch the people around you and try to intervene if someone is going to possibly be
0: assaulted right and it's it's kind of easier said than done though right there's mm. <laughs> the, the what are the things that we kind of need to have in order for this to work and and why is it so challenging, and then how does alcohol make that even more challenging?
2: Well, bystander intervention is hard to do in, in, in the beginning. Um, bystander intervention requires you to notice that something is happening. You have to decide that you're the one who must do something. Mm, take you must on responsibility. Be, yeah. yeah, you have to be the one who's responsible, and you have to develop some kind of plan to intervene, and then you have to initiate this plan. Mm-hmm. And so bystander intervention could fail at any of those steps, and this is why some people don't intervene when someone else is having some kind of crisis and but there are also lots of other things that make bystander intervention tough when you're talking about sexual situations so even taking away the alcohol if we're talking about men for example Mm. um, men don't want to get involved in their other men's relationship you know their friends sexual
1: we got a code uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, the bro
2: code, right? Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't get involved when your friend is trying to chat up a girl. So, this violates some kind of social norms that, that men have
0: and yeah, I mean so women funny. Have I literally like- had this conversation with, with somebody today earlier today where he was telling me about you know how he really feels uncomfortable and doesn't ever f- coerce anybody into anything but his friends often do and he was just like yeah like, a, like, like the other day we were uh, out and, and he was making out with this girl and then he was trying to get her to kind of give him a blow job and she was like no no I, I, I don't really want to and he was like oh come on come on and kept pushing her head down and i'm like well did you say something i was like no i would never do mm, that yeah did you ask him why he would never do yeah that? <laughs> he's like and he, what did he say you just don't do that it's 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 his business <laughs> yeah that's it it's his, yeah. Business. Yeah. It's his business. Not my business yeah
1: although if someone spilled a drink on him he'd probably punch the guy out <laughs> which is funny in that way um,
2: yeah <laughs> well it's it's hard when other men are involved. You know, men's relationships are, you know, built on this dominance hierarchy and competition and in some ways sexual conquests are part of that mm. Competition that exists among men. So for a man to go and intervene and try to prevent his bro, his right. friend, from engaging in sexuality, you have to wonder, well, is he just trying to push me down so right. that mm. I can't then... Is he
1: trying you know, to take this woman for me, from yeah, me?
2: Yeah, yeah. There are yeah, all me. kinds of competitive... Uh-huh relationships that exist among man groups that might perpetuate, I guess, a pressure to not intervene.
0: Yeah. yeah. Can't
1: fix that doc. I don't think there's anything you could do.
2: Yes, we can. I don't know. I think you (laughs) see. Look at us. Yes, we're talking about it. Right. (laughs) We both said the same thing. I, I think that, well, 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 I'm going to come back to this when I talk about my conclusions, because (laughs) I really think that this is exactly where we need to intervene. Mm. And I'm I'm going to say, too, that alcohol exacerbates the issue because this part where in order to intervene as a bystander, you have to notice what's Mm -hmm. happening. I think that that's one of the huge implications of alcohol consumption As you may not notice, maybe because you're at a party and you're focused on your own thing, so you're not really mm-hmm. paying attention to what your friend is doing. But also, your own alcohol consumption may cause you to, you know, again, this alcohol myopia, focus in on a couple of your details and not be as focused in the protection of your friend. Right. So alcohol complicates what is already a complicated issue.
0: Oh, boy. And so you have these really fascinating two questions you know how much are drunk people <laughs> how, how much do they think that they are capable of consenting and then what do they think about the ability of their friends to consent and you didn't go about this the way most sex research is done which is just ask people in a survey online survey to to tell you what um what they would do if they were drunk and you didn't even another less common way but you know still not entirely uncommon when uh, people are studying alcohol is to bring people into the lab and kind of get them drunk there <laughs> and then mm-hmm. ask them some questions. Joe is like, you what? You didn't do that, did you? What? No, they didn't <laughs> do that. No. But there are studies. They have these like bar kind of labs okay. where, of course, with consent and sure. everything, you wouldn't get them pass out drunk.
1: Right. Yeah, you would. A little tipsy.
0: <laughs> A little tipsy, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but you actually went out into the field, into the wild, wild world of bars and got some drunk people out there who are you getting went drunk in, by themselves. You went and partied, Michelle? Is that what you did? I did. I don't know if you'd call it a party, but I was witnessing
2: of the party. Oh, okay. <laughs>
0: so, so tell us, tell yeah. us about this, like where and, and, and how and when and how did this yeah. happen? Yeah, so first, let me
2: say that I, I brought uh, Dr. Jaskowski on really early to try to guide me in this because she is an expert in consent. And she was like, Yeah, this is a great idea if mm. you can get into a bar and get drunk people to actually come and do a study, <laughs> which at the <laughs> onset sounded like a pretty implausible venture. Right. I'm going to go into a bar and offer these people either possibly a chips or a candy bar, maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to be taking you out of this bar for about 10 to 15 minutes. While you do a, a research study, and so <laughs> it seemed like it may be really difficult, um, but surprisingly, it was pretty simple. So, oh really? Great, it yeah. turns out
0: drunk people love to do studies in the middle of the drinking. Hey, everybody knows that, Doctor John. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know what? Surprisingly, yes. I mean, we had a fair share of you know a lot of people said no, which is why we mm. had to go for uh, a lot of nights. It was a really really complex protocol. I I, I often run complex protocols, but this one is definite my most complex because you had to have two people participate but they had to be really spaced out far from each other when they were doing the actual interview so that they couldn't hear each other's
0: answers so you had you you uh, got your, res- your research subject as as pairs of people right pairs of people, yeah. So okay, we, so
1: walk us through this because yeah, it's fascinating. Through the, through like, the protocol. Because I get, <laughs> you're in there, you've got like, what do you got, like a Shirley Temple you're drinking or something like that? Non-alcoholic no, no, <laughs> <it> drink?
2: <laughs> no, no, no,
1: no. And then you're I spotting these a clipboard. people? clipboard. <laughs> oh, you are carrying a clipboard? Okay. Well, you could have had a Shirley Temple. I, I wrong carried, with that.
2: yeah, I carried a clipboard okay. into the bar. I actually, I did um, I didn't do a ton of the recruitment. I would mainly stay in the area where we were doing the testing okay. because I would watch all of the different pieces unfold. Um, so we would send recruiters. We always made sure that we sent recruiters in pairs. We would always send at least one woman as a recruiter. Dr. Jaskowski said that they had better luck with recruitment when they had a woman recruiter, so we relied on her knowledge. Um, And then we did same-sex interviews, so men would interview with men and mm-hmm. the women would interview with women which was also something that was kind of a standard protocol but because of that we had to have a lot of research assistants there right. wow. um, be- because you had also different stations so we had these interviewers but we also had someone who was doing the consent forms and then we also had someone who was measuring BAC and that was a separate station. Blood
0: alcohol, alcohol she's levels. Hold on a
1: second doc you, you got to describe this for me so are you setting up a lab in the middle of yeah, Holi yeah, hands? You, you, yes. kind of, yeah.
3: <laughs> so
0: you have yeah, to describe basically. a little bit what, what happened yeah. exactly how this took place. We get
1: you got the one recruiter. I got that. So they'll go in, it's a oh, female. we
2: always send no. people in pairs. No, we send people in pairs right. so at least one was a woman. Okay. But we would send them in pairs because I I was very aware that my students going into a bar, I wanted to be sure that they had someone with them to make right. sure that they were okay and, and then, you know they're recruiting intoxicated people, right. so it's a kind of a an environment that you don't know what's going to happen. So my they always went in pairs.
3: Okay.
0: And then they would seek out pairs of people to interview? They or would pick out anyone was
2: who is at least in a group of two okay. or a bigger group. And the only questions they would ask are, have you been drinking and do you know this person? And that's mm-hmm. it. And um, then they would say, okay, well then... Because if they haven't been drinking, then obviously they're We're not home, right. <laughs> right. they're they're not going to be really eligible for the study. Right. and then uh, if they don't know each other at all, if they just happen to like be standing together be to each other randomly, together, yeah. it also is not uh, a, a good <laughs> right. they're not gonna be a good fit for the study. okay, so so, you,
1: so the recruiter yeah. goes in and finds Sally and Mike and Sally and Mike both say they've both been drinking and they're hanging out there.
0: They know each yeah. other. They know each other. They're either friends or boyfriend yeah. girlfriend or whatever. Yeah.
1: So on yeah. a date, sure. Okay, so then, yeah. so then what happened to Sally and Mike?
0: <laughs> so then they're brought into
2: what would have been, as you phrased, the lab, and this was actually really convenient. We, we had multiple sites identified at the beginning, but we ended up just settling on uh, a single site because it was perfect. It had a banquet hall oh, okay. attached to it that so was uh-huh. just through two glass doors. So they didn't have
1: to go far. They just went like down the hall or something. Yeah. I
2: mean, it wasn't even down the hall. They went just, it was the same part of the bar, but then they had these glass doors that closed. And then we had this entire banquet hall in order to set up our different areas, which was really necessary to maintain the confidentiality of their responses. Um, So yeah. And then so Sally and Mike go through
3: the
0: glass doors Mm -hmm. and they get to, what's the first station? The first station is consent. Not sexual so, consent. Consent for the study. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yes. the study. yeah no sexual consent being went on in the study. Right. Okay. Um, so we, yeah, consent to participate in the study, and if they decided they would like to participate, um, the next section was the interview section, and the consent took you know a different amount of time for each of the pairs, so, and then the interview took a different amount of time, and uh, then they would go and get their blood. But they would get interviewed covered. at the
0: same time, right? The, the two- yeah, they were interviewed at approximately
2: the same time Mm -hmm. just far from Um, each other so
0: they can't hear what the other person is saying
2: yeah they're they were about 20 feet away from each Mm -hmm. other it's like the
1: newlywed game with alcohol and in a banquet hall though yeah just like that maybe
2: a little a little (laughs) and then afterwards they would go over and then we didn't show them or tell them what their blood alcohol level was and then the last person would say would you like chips or a candy bar interestingly lots of people declined they didn't (laughs) want a candy bar
0: (laughs)
3: <laughs>
2: yeah. Or the, chips. The, 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 uh, chips or candy bar. I thought all salad. drunk
0: people wanted... Something I know.
2: to eat. That that could have mm-hmm. been another part of our study. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, many people were like, "No, I don't even want want the chips or candy bar." So they were really doing it just to help science, I guess. Amazing, that's
3: <laughs> nice. How
1: did you <laughs> test we their alcohol them. level? By the way, was it a P test?
2: I uh, know it was a breathalyzer.
1: <laughs> oh, breathalyzer, okay.
2: Yeah, breathalyzer that you might do on the side of the road. Okay. So we, we bought we brought this um, backtrack.
0: I um, I think this must must have been one of the most interesting like methods section of a paper i've ever i've ever read because it had things like i have to i have to read this joe you know bear with me people were read the consent form and then they were asked to answer some questions to make sure they understood they're not too drunk to actually (laughs) understand and then they're like in addition they were told that if they were too intoxicated to complete the study like if they were passing out or stumbling the study wouldn't end and it's worth noting that none of the 160 participants were forced to end the study early because of extreme intoxication symptoms like slipping out of their chairs, passing out, falling down, and all passed the informed consent procedure.
1: Oh, so that's kudos to the re- researcher, <laughs> the, the, the 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 recruiter. I guess the recruiter did a nice job of pairing off and finding people that weren't too they weren't I mean, passing out. Yeah, good yeah. good job on them. Good on <laughs> you. Yeah, well,
2: that's it. I mean, <laughs> they wouldn't have um, approached people who were like being t- drug out of the bar because they couldn't stand anymore. Right. Um, but uh, I mean. I mean, surprisingly the blood alcohol levels that we got in the sample were still very there was a wide range okay. and so some sense. of these people were incredibly intoxicated mm. the questions that we asked were simple we just wanted to make sure they understood what was going on in the study and if they you know if they had questions about it they were usually just like i didn't remember what you said can you repeat it it, it was it, that actually was one of the most eye opening things for me because i talked to every person who came through this
3: study. Mm -hmm.
2: And some of them seemed completely sober. And when we did their blood alcohol count, sometimes I would look at it and I would say, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: One that stands out to me particularly was a young man who had come through and he said to me, oh, I'm in your class. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, oh, you're in my class. And he said, yeah. He, and I said, I, I, don't, I don't recognize you. You huh. must be in my intro class because that's big. And he's like, yeah. And he's like, you might not see me because I sit in the top, like in the right. And so he's like, like a couple rows down. Mm-hmm. And I was like, my goodness, no, I don't, I don't recognize you. So he had me convinced he was in my class. Okay, he was talking to me. This guy's blood alcohol level was above a 0. 0.3 above a point 0.3 like he could have been in the hospital wow his blood alcohol level was you know for reference
1: that's like 3 times drive. right is that 2 or 3 times the, the level it's
2: almost 4 times
1: almost the four level times. Wow. like
2: wow. it's it's 0.08 to drive and this was a, a young man who carried on a conversation <laughs> with me and had me convinced that he
0: was in my class And he described exactly where and yeah yeah, yeah. he described where he sat
2: so <laughs> wow. what i think was shocking to me was you had people who seemed incredibly coherent mm-hmm. whose intoxication levels were actually
0: really high. Right. And it, so, it, you know, applying that to real world scenarios where if someone's interacting with someone like that, that person seems perfectly sober yeah. or, you know, at
2: least. Yeah, that was the scary right. thing for me. It, it, it's scary because they seem perfectly sober. So, what types of things, if this person had been my friend, Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'm going to go drive. And I'd be like, okay, well, you seem fine. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> I'm mean, i carrying around my personal BAC. Lizer, sure. yeah. I, yeah, my friends are able to drive or make these decisions about consent. He seemed fine. Uh, you know, another one of the interviews I did was really interesting. So when we were doing the consent process, the girl was like a little bit, She she answered all the questions correctly, but she seemed a little bit, like she told me she had been drinking a lot. Mm. And so I thought, Ooh, I'm not sure she's going to make it through this interview process. (laughs) She might fall asleep in the chair. (laughs) Yeah. She might be the one who falls off the chair and we actually say, okay, well that's, you know, that's the end of the interview. But then when I got her to the interview, She said, I actually just really want to complete this quickly. Can we go through the questions quickly? And I said, why, sure, I can go as quickly as you go. And she did it with like surgeon-like precision. It was (laughs) unbelievable. She immediately snapped into this mode of answering Hmm. that was more efficient than any other person. And so even from this onset of, you know, from the consent process to the end of the interview, my perceptions of how with it she was changed completely.
1: Right. Right. That happens with, like, if you buzz drive, if you, like, maybe had a beer before you were driving, mm-hmm. you're, like, you are super careful as you're driving. Your eyes are super wide open. You're holding that, <laughs> you know, the, the steering wheel for dear life. And I guess you just get hyper focused at the time when, it, when, you know, the call <laughs> comes I mean It down. really
0: calls into question you know, how much are, different abilities affected yeah. and different people at different levels of, of intoxication. That complicates, yeah.
1: complicates the study for you, right?
0: It does com- complicate it, but for me, I wasn't analyzing,
2: you know, inter- inter-individual variability, mm-hmm. though that was really fascinating to me just as a, an anecdotal yeah. piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting that some people could have been so high in their blood alcohol level and still have been so con- coherent. And just, as I say, the variability you saw even within the context of the interview. Right.
1: And just out of curiosity, how long did it take consent to cookie, these studies? Like from the time that they... Consent <laughs> to cookie. <laughs> That's consent about to about
0: cookie. It, it a, yeah, it took about 15 minutes.
1: 15 minutes. Cool. All right. I was curious how long they were in there. And,
0: and did you then put them back in the bar? <laughs> yeah. Then we would walk them
2: out of the room and walk them back into the bar
0: right sure. so they could keep drinking yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome
2: <laughs> actually some of them were like you know what I'm just gonna go home now like <laughs> and that was actually really funny so some That's funny. I think we might we spoiled their mood sufficiently <laughs> 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 in our research study. they actually didn't feel like enjoying any revelry anymore they were, uh, they were
1: she's like, yeah. she was like a, she cock blocked them for the night They're like oh, I don't <laughs> know I'm not in the mood anymore I'm done
0: I know <laughs> maybe maybe I've had enough yeah for, yeah
2: Yeah. I, I, I mean, we did ask them a lot. We asked them about their ability to consent and ability to drive. So Mm. it may have had an effect of making those issues more salient for them. So, you know, it may have stopped some people. It's
1: like seeing your mom at the bar. I'm like, oh, (laughs) she's numb. I'm I'm in no mood to party now.
0: (laughs) That's exactly what it probably was. Did you all have white lab coats?
2: No, we didn't. We, we didn't. just dressed normally. In fact, yeah. I told everyone to dress like they were going to a club, Smart. because I wanted mm-hmm. them to blend in as much as they could. Yeah. I even, like I said, the the although it was a banquet room, we had it set up so the lighting was dim. We wanted the mm-hmm. room that they were tested in to mimic the room that they were just right. taken
3: from. You didn't make as much it look as we like could. a hospital. Brilliant.
2: No, right. it was not. It was very. Yeah. It was very. Uh, it was dark. It was. It was much like the club, but without the bump, bump, bump of the yeah.
0: music. Like, yeah.
1: It sounds like you had Ashton Kutcher involved. This like sounds like an episode of Punked. Like how elaborate <laughs> the setup was with the back room and the lighting and everything like that. Good on you <laughs> there, Michelle.
0: It,
2: it, I'm telling you, it was a really elaborate protocol. When I look back on it, it was.
0: You should be really proud. It, yeah. I, I, I do. <laughs>
2: it was extreme. I and I'm. You know, I'm just this midwestern suburban mom. And oh, so stop downplaying.
1: Yourself, yes. Michelle, you're
2: so a- me going out <laughs> to the club from you know we didn't get started until eleven, so I'd have my research assistants get there at ten so mm. we could do everything to set up. But you know I'm winding down by ten thirty <laughs> on a yeah, typical you were there Saturday night, like eleven so. to
0: two a.m. Okay. or something.
2: Uh, yeah, and and again, <laughs> um, you know my husband wants me to. See study like bug resistant corn. So this was really (laughs) far off when I was telling him, I'm going to go to the club (laughs) and I'll be there every Friday and Saturday night until we get a good end, which we couldn't anticipate, you know, because we just really didn't know what our recruitment would be like. But actually, as I say, it was really, really easy. These people were, they just seemed, you know, it's an interesting thing to do at a bar. Yeah. Everyone's kind of standing around, and then they're like, oh, "Do want not to do much. this thing for 15 mm. minutes?" That's a little bit different than what you normally do. Right. I think I think that must have been the appeal because, um, yeah, it, we had pretty consistent people through there. There there weren't ever any big time lags where we didn't have anyone who was mm. saying, "Yes, yes, I'll do this study."
0: Yeah, I guess you know they're there just hanging out. They have time. You're catching them at a time when they have time, when they're out to kind of have fun or do something interesting, yeah. and this is something interesting. That they did something. Yeah, talk to their friends about and compare <laughs> okay. notes and, and whatnot. And yeah. uh, how long did it ta- How many Fridays and Saturdays did it take to get the 160 folks?
2: Oh, gosh, a lot. I think <laughs> we were probably there 11 or 12
0: Friday or Saturdays. So 11 weeks or like five weeks? Uh, five, five weeks. Six, five, six weeks. Five wow. Weeks. Which might not sound like a lot, but it was
1: a lot. Easier. No, night in, night out. That would have been rough. Yeah, Joe would
0: have died I if you dead. had made him yeah. go out every Friday and Saturday. Can we do the
1: study between two and three on a Wednesday? Can we do that. <laughs> PM. Yeah. I'm sure your husband would have preferred that.
0: Okay, I think we've talked so much about the methods. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the results. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. did you find? First of all, do people have a relatively accurate perception of? their own and their friends' level of intoxication? Because you asked them both how intoxicated they were and how intoxicated their friends were, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, kind of. I mean, people were pretty good about rating um, their intoxication levels. The interesting thing is, you know, we had these significant correlations between their intoxication levels. We asked them basically on a nine point scale, how intoxicated do you think you are? Zero is at the limit. And then negative nine is extremely below the legal limit for driving. Positive nine is extremely above the legal limit for driving. We'd show them this on an iPad while we were saying it because everything was verbally said to them. And then we'd show them the scales on the things that were a little bit more complex. Mm. And, you know, people, were pretty good at estimating their own um, intoxication. Because basically, they rated themselves on average slightly above zero on this scale, and the BAC on average was basically .08. So (laughs)
3: on
2: average, they were right on. (laughs) Um, And they reported drinking about five drinks on average. So Hmm. they were pretty good. But then we looked at it in a little bit of a more nuanced way to see whether or not they had a concordance with what their friends estimated, for example, that they had consumed. And then when we started looking at that, we saw a little bit more of um, the problems in terms of discordance. So we focused our analyses really on whether their ratings were similar to their friends' ratings of themselves. Mm-hmm. So obviously, as we said, people were recruited in pairs. These pairs weren't anything from, I remember this one couple, they were on their first date. And, uh, <laughs> what a first date. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah, a first date. And I remember they were both, he was actually a scientist. Huh. So um, that was kind of interesting. The fact that they were at this club was kind of interesting because I wouldn't have thought it would have been the club <laughs> where a scientist would go on a first, first date. date
3: and, yeah.
2: <laughs> but anyway, it was, it was he was actually a scientist and she was just um, kind of really interested. So they didn't know a lot about each other. Each other, mm-hmm. uh, so that that was an interesting couple. But many of these people like had known each other for their lifetimes. You know, we had brothers and sisters, we <laughs> had cousins, we had best friends. And what we wanted to see was how good were you at counting the number of drinks that your partner mm-hmm. consumed, mm-hmm. or your we'll just call them friends consumed. Right. And in that in that sense, not a lot of them are concordant. So only one in five of them said. My friend drank five drinks, and then their friend also reported that they drank five Mm -hmm. drinks. So only one or five of them were concordant.
0: But the exact number of drinks.
2: Yeah, exact number. That's the concordance for the exact number. Most of them um, were discordant. So, in fact, most of them underestimated. Mm. Uh, Well, about half of them underestimated. So we're saying they underestimated, though we don't have a true count.
0: It, yeah, that sure. would have been
2: an interesting aspect of the study and maybe is the next layer for anyone who's adventurous. To spy
0: to on them all night and, and see yeah. how many they, they did actually drink. That's yeah. weird, though. You would think, especially
1: if they they've known each other and they're sitting there the whole time, it's it seems like it's very easy to do. Like, oh, okay, we ordered three rounds of drinks, so I had three, they had three, or something to that effect. But to be yeah. that or far they off, they skipped
0: that round, therefore y- they had, yeah. or they ordered one more than I did. Yeah, yeah. But. I mean, and
2: I remember in the context of these interviews, people
0: counting, like
2: saying, "Okay, well, we just had a Jack and Coke, and then mm-hmm. we had one." You know, people <laughs> okay. actually counted it out to me. Um, so I was actually a little bit surprised that they underestimated, because like like both of you are saying, there would be cues you'd probably mm-hmm. use to be able to count this. Um, but they mostly underestimated the number of drinks, and they underestimated by a pretty good amount, like by two drinks wow. on average. Interesting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And two drinks could, you know, tip you over sure. from being okay to being, you know, not able to drive, perhaps.
0: Right, you know? right for or example. Not able to consent or to or
2: Yeah, <laughs> possibly not able to consent, which I know we're going to get to the bigger yeah. question yeah. a little later on. Um, and then, yeah, so although th- what you saw is a really strong correlation between my assessment of my friend's number of drinks and their reported number of drinks, our, our, our correlation was 0.61, um, still there was a lot of discordance there. So why this is relevant is because a lot of times when you have, for example, a court case, and you bring in people who are there. They'll ask them, "Well, how much was Sally drinking?" Mm. And they're going to say, "Well, I, you know, I think she had seven drinks, or she had seven drinks." But how accurate are those estimations right. about how much Sally was drinking? But really, when you took a more detailed view of it, um, they they weren't really good at assessing their their friend's level of intoxication. Yeah. Or so much interest.
1: for having a wingman there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know. uh, so it really does make you question your wingman and whether or not they're really tuned into you like you think they might be right
0: right and to the big question um, how are they perceiving their ability to consent to sex and how is that yeah. related to their level of intoxication actual level of intoxication you know based on the on the breathalyzer and their perception of their intoxication well
2: overall people were very confident in their ability to consent So 93% said that they could consent. 93%? Yeah, 93% of them said that they could consent to sex. And 87% thought that their friends could consent to sex.
0: It's funny that they were somewhat more confident about themselves yeah. and their friends. I mean, it's not a huge difference, but... Yeah, yeah.
2: I, I think they're probably a little bit more conservative with their friends, but they're like, me, definitely. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a self-serving bias, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm fine. I don't know if my mm-hmm. friend is fine, but I'm fine.
0: Right. And was this correlated with how intoxicated... I mean, you don't have a lot of variability. If 93% of people saying, yeah, I can consent, then... You don't have a lot of variability in the sample for those who might be saying no, but was it somewhat correlated with how intoxicated they were?
2: Yeah, exactly. You don't have much variability and no, the ability to consent was not related to how many drinks they reported drinking, how intoxicated they they reported themselves, how many symptoms they said they had, or their BAC. Now, there were two things that were. So we asked some, we actually asked some four questions that would be related a little bit to consent. One of them was, would you be able to have sex without passing out? Mm -hmm. And that was negatively related to the number of symptoms they recorded. So those who reported they had a greater number of symptoms were less likely to say that they could have sex without passing out.
0: And symptoms, uh, yeah. We didn't talk about the symptoms, so just.
2: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the symptoms. So we basically took uh, a list of intoxication symptoms um, using some of the uh, guidelines that are out referring to intoxication symptoms. And so we asked them, which of these do you think you have? And then we asked impaired balance, slurred speech, vomiting, are you drowsy, or do you have loss of critical judgment? And so the people who said they had more of these symptoms said that they were less likely to be able to have sex without passing out. And then they also were less likely to say that they would remember
0: sex the Mm -hmm. next day. Uh, But none of the other measures... they still thought that they could consent to sex at the same rate as the people who are less intoxicated.
2: Yeah, they thought they were able to consent. Mm. But they did recognize... That they might have trouble remembering it or right. that they might pass out.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that they didn't seem to have a problem with not remembering it the next day or, or passing out in the middle of it, right? They were like, yeah, I can totally say yes. And sure, I might pass out or and not remember, remember what it, happened, yeah. but I can totally say yes. <laughs> yeah.
2: So the, I thought that that was really interesting, too. And I'm glad you picked that out, because I think that they believed in their ability to make decisions, mm-hmm. even if those decisions might not work out towards the end. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, something bad might happen from it, but I feel confident I could make the decision.
0: That's really curious and interesting. How do we how do we as a society, as friends, as you know, educators, how, how do we take that do we give people agency these are adults right these are these are adults 21 who, or over yeah, yeah <laughs> 21 and over who we've decided that we have given you know the the right to make decisions about their own lives that they're mature enough and old enough to do that and they're telling us look i'm good i can make decisions yeah it might not work out but i can make this decision and i want to be allowed to make this decision you can't take it away from me and so what do we do do we say you don't know what's best for you, and therefore you can't, like we do with driving, right? With driving, yeah. we've decided that a certain level of alcohol content, you cannot drive. Yeah. Do we, Can we do that for for sex as well? Should we do that for sex as well, or should we take these people's experiences of their own ability to consent at face value?
2: This is such a great ethical question, and it really did... It sparked a lot of discussion between me and Dr. Jaskowski while we were writing this paper. So, how junk is too junk to consent, mm. really? If they are saying that they can consent, mm. then who are we to say, no, you cannot? Right. And, uh, Interestingly, we also asked them about their ability to drive and Mm. to, and we, we phrased everything in the same way. Could you consent to drive? Could Mm. you, would you, uh, could you drive without passing out uh, or falling asleep? And Mm -hmm. could you, would you remember driving tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And People were much more conservative about their ability to consent to drive than to consent
0: to drive. Interesting. Yeah, you didn't have that in the paper. and you We didn't. S- I, I, it, I was it, dying yeah. to know. I was like, oh, because you said, you know, we asked people about driving, but we're not going to give you those results in the paper. I was like, no, give me those results in the paper. Okay, so you do have those those numbers, and they were more we conservative. Did.
2: Yeah, they were more conservative. We analyzed them, and we originally, on an early version of the paper, we had it, but it was just so complex. It's and we too wanted much to stuff. present a really straightforward message. So, so
0: what was um, it? what, what yeah, was, it was the it? percentage that? Yeah, so on that. about
2: half of them said that they could consent to drive. <laughs> half versus
0: 93% saying, <laughs> I can consent, consent to, sex. to sex. Yeah.
2: And I can't remember the exact percentage. It might have been sure. like 60% yeah. said they could consent to drive, but it was a really big difference. And what Dr. Jaskowski and I talked about was the idea that driving... Driving has been so advertised as this very dangerous thing that mm. you could do when you're drunk, and so many people were have these clear limits about driving based on probably the advertisements that we've had on the dangers right. of driving drunk and the legal the consequences. legal consequences.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean there, that's so drilled into us that you know there's a very clear limit, yeah. and the and the limit is very clear, right? We don't have a very clear limit for for sex right yeah. now, and or what should be. You know, the limit for being able to consent to sex. And whereas for driving, we do. And
1: I think we all have sort of a baseline. Like, I know I could probably do one vodka soda and drive, but if it's two, I'm like, eh, it's a little sketchy there. Whereas you never think about sex. Like, okay, I think I'm, I'll be fine with this. It's just not. Like, like the doc said, it's like, you know, we're in advertising, you know, just, you know, don't drink and drive, don't drink and don't sex. Don't drink and sex. sex. Don't yeah. drink and sex. Yeah. You
2: know, that's interesting. You, you've just created a campaign, don't drink and <laughs> <Yeah. in> sex. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think it's because it's invasive in a person's uh, you know, personal life. Mm. And I think the whole drinking and driving standard has come out of a, a public safety interest. Mm. And whereas sexuality, it may not seem as related to public safety, mm. though with the rates of sex assault as they are, And the co-occurrence of sex assault and intoxication, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there does need to be some campaign. Certainly some campaign like what we have for drinking and driving would probably raise people's awareness Awareness of the issue. But is it ethical? Is, is, you know, are we good to make those decisions? Is it right for us to make decisions about when someone could consent to sex? I'm not sure. I mean...
1: It could be, it could be timing though, Michelle, because think about it. Those drinking and driving spots didn't really start till the early to mid eighties. So think about how long people were driving and Mm -hmm. those PSAs were not on television. We weren't flooded with it. So it could be another 20 something years because now we're just talking about this Mm -hmm. consent while drinking thing. So we may not be alive when we'll see, when we see those PSAs on the air, (laughs) you know?
0: completely true. Yeah, it's actually interesting when in the description of the sample, uh, you asked them how many, you know, w- whether people have driven drunk in the past and whether they've had consensual sex after having, consuming, having consumed alcohol. And uh, from reading from the table, 64% of them said that they've driven drunk in the past. 64%. Mm. That's a lot of you. <laughs> and then yeah. 83% said that they have had sex after drinking.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why we did this study, because I think people are still making those decisions, even though they acknowledge they might be intoxicated. The, the biggest thing I think that came out of this for me is the idea that people don't think their judgment has really been impaired. Mm. Even if they have slurred speech, for example. So like one fifth of our sample said, yeah, I think my speech is slurred. Mm-hmm. But then when we asked them, have, do you have any loss in critical judgment? They're like, no. no. I mean, mm-hmm. one in 10 said that. Um, or impaired memory only six percent said that they had any kind of impaired memory and mm. we know that alcohol has really strong effects on memory you know it has a huge interaction with like hippocampal function so they, yeah. they, they're saying no uh, but it's it's quite possible that there was an effect
0: we didn't touch on this and it was super interesting because you had these people take the survey or go through the study in pairs. And some of those pairs were female-female, some were male-male, and some were male-female. And um, the rates of whether they would let their friend have sex or consent to sex was very different based on the gender of that person.
2: Yeah. So when we asked them, for those in man-man pairs, 91% of them said that they'd allow their friend Mm -hmm. to have sex with someone right now. Mm. Whereas in women 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 woman pairs only thirty three percent said that they would let their friend have sex right now wow. that was another really strong trend that we saw is that these women had developed protective functions that they at least expressed to us whether mm-hmm. or not that would have actually been enacted we don't know right. but they expressed to us oh no i already told her she's not going home with anyone or i would not mm-hmm. you know, have sex with someone right now and so even though they rated each other's intoxication equally there was no difference between men and women in how intoxicated they thought their friend were in terms of the man-man pairs and the women-woman pairs so, But there was a big difference right i there was, saying, there was yeah, no
0: difference in how intoxicated the, the men and the women were, according to their friends. Yeah, according to their friends, there was no difference. But thirty three percent versus ninety. See, that's
1: the girl code. <sighs> that girl, girl code's code. the other yeah. way around. Mm-hmm. I'm watching that's your right. back. You know,
2: that's right. And there's a pressure for girls to watch after each other. So what you have are these this tension. You have these two competing pressures. For men, it is don't get involved,
0: right. or you even weak. encourage, even encourage your friend to yeah. get laid.
2: Exactly. Mm. And for women, there's a pressure to say, oh, no, I'm not letting my girlfriend go home with anyone. Mm. I'm not letting her have sex with someone. And so and those feed into obviously societal norms about what's appropriate for men and women Mm. and gender biases about sexuality. And, you know, so many things that I don't even have time to talk about. (laughs) However, what it made me feel and especially as a mother of two sons is that there is a pressure among men to display their sexuality. And then there's also a non-protective thing going on in these men groups where even if they thought, oh, my friend is drunk, they are not going to intervene. And that made me feel really sad. It made mm-hmm. me feel really upset for men that they don't have these protective factors in place.
0: Right. So we already kind of talked about you know the whole dilemma around how drunk is too drunk, but what are some other implications and challenges left open by some of some of these findings, some of these data?
2: The how drunk is, is too drunk is a really big ethical consideration that I don't know is going to be solved by science. Right. Uh, you know, I, I it would be really hard, I think, to suss that out with scientific inquiry, I think we will need to really think about that ethically. But um, I think consent programming could really be affected by this. This perpetuation of the bystander model within sex consent programming, I think, really needs to be reexamined to see whether or not this is really a viable option for people? How focused are we really on people, you know, intervening with people? One of the things that I think is is important here is that People had known each other for, I think, an average of, you know, seven years. I mean, these people knew each other.
3: Yeah.
2: And sometimes we're asking people who just met to say how drunk mm. was that person, right. and it's very hard because I, if I just met you, I don't know how you are when you're not drinking. Right. Mm. I don't. I don't know if how you're, you handle alcohol.
0: Yeah. What's yeah your I, and... I. could.
2: I could see you have a couple of drinks. That doesn't mean I'm counting them accurately, mm. and I don't know how you handle your alcohol and how how do I know if you have blurred vision? (laughs) Unless someone is is falling, again, falling out of their chair, which didn't happen for Mm -hmm. any of these participants, how are you really supposed to tell if they have impaired judgment? Because – and especially since they're not reporting themselves that they have impaired right. judgment. So as my – you know, if this person who's drinking and he's like, well, I'm okay, I don't have impaired judgment, I I had seven drinks, and then he's looking and maybe the person he just met, you know, she had four drinks, and he's like, well, I'm okay, she, you know, she's mm-hmm. probably okay, she seems like she's okay. I think it's just – it, we're really asking people to do something that's incredibly complex right that even as a sober researcher was difficult <laughs> for me to do mm-hmm. like I if I had to assess whether or not these people were drunk or not, I would have it would have been uh, Diff, really right.
0: difficult. Yeah, I mean, and you're right a sober researcher who's not interested in hooking up with these people, right? You don't have the arousal piece that exactly. often clouds judgment as well and, exactly. and you know, all of that and it still would be difficult to say, yeah, this person seems like they'd be okay Yeah,
3: to
2: make that I, I decision. Mean, how,
0: this person how do I not. know
2: if they have impaired judgment, especially since these people are engaging in a conversation with me and they were able to consent to participate in a research study, mm-hmm. even though by standards of, you know, blood alcohol level, they were considered drunk, you know, but they, they were able to understand my questions. You know, these people got through 15 minutes of questions (laughs) that they were able to answer. It's just, I don't know, it makes, and it also makes you wonder, you know, you have these effects of memory that are often found. Um, Alcohol, it has proven effects on, on memory. Mm. But does that really translate into decreased ability to communicate in an effective way in the moment of intoxication? Right. I, I I'm not I'm not sure that we have enough research on that, and particularly as you stated at the beginning of this interview, in the naturalistic setting, you know, right? Because maybe I'm going to be able to pull it together when I'm communicating in a bar, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you snap snap out of it or into it. So. I mean I know there's no easy question but what are what are your feelings based on all this research that you've done and reading and thinking how do we set policies around what is assault and what isn't especially when alcohol is involved given all these complexities what are the most useful most productive most realistic policies that we can set that reflect reality. All of the knowledge that you have around this, what do you see as the most productive on a, on a societal level or an organizational level or a college level, whatever level that is? What are the right policies? What is the right approach to, I don't know, setting some standards of you know, when is something sexual assault and who's responsible and what level? How do, we, how do we go about this in a way that reflects reality and research data and what we know what happens in these situations?
2: I think that's a really complex question. I know. Sorry. I feel like the only answer I really got out of this in terms of change or something that could be implemented immediately that might make a difference is for people to be educated on, especially men, to Mm -hmm. be educated on how to intervene when they do think that a friend might be intoxicated. So I know this is not your question, but let me say that Mm -hmm. for me, this was my biggest take home. I think that men need to be given the conversational tips that they would need in order to intervene with their man friend. When they think that their man friend is drunk and then might be making a decision that could either leave him being a victim or a perpetrator mm. of sexual assault, because a lot of times when the man is very drunk, the woman is also very drunk right. or you know the other man that he might be um, trying to engage in sexual activity with so I think my biggest take-home was that the programming needs to be changed so that men can be more aware that this is happening and that you are not protecting your friends by allowing them to engage in sexual activity when they're drunk. Mm -hmm. In terms of the bigger question about how sexual assault needs to be conceptualized considering this consent issue – I'm not sure. It'll be interesting as these results are are tested by other researchers and how they I'll be I'll be interested to see how they expand this work. Right now, I don't think this offers any answers. All it tells us is that people are saying they can consent at the time and that they believe that they're going to be able to remember it they believe they're not going to pass out or fall mm. asleep and so i think we need to consider that in light of the sexual assault allegations that probably many of these people had you know similar confidence Right. in their abilities when this occurred. It, but maybe objectively they were very, very drunk. So I just I just think it needs to be considered but I don't think that we have any answers yeah. in terms of policy. Do yeah. you have answers? No, yeah. I
0: wish I did. I, I've been asking everybody this and it's it's yeah, it's such a difficult question. It's such a case by case basis and so difficult to make these universal kind of laws and policies that will apply for every to everyone in in every situation. Do you see it? I mean, because, you know, sometimes as a society, we do respond to some of these things in in this very black or white way because it's easy because it's, you know, it, it doesn't leave any any room for error. So like we've decided with driving, we've decided that this is the level of alcohol that you cannot have if you're above that level. That's illegal. Do you see our society maybe going in that direction when it comes to sex? That if your BAC is beyond you know above whatever point yeah. eight, that and and you have you have sex and that's assault or something something of that kind. I I'm not, I'm not maybe, asking if you think that's a good yeah <laughs> way to Orwellian. do it. Orwellian, like. <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like uh,
2: this is a really big government intrusion on on personal. Rights. I I think I think that it would help. I mean, if we had such a law in place, I think it would help as as we were talking about these campaigns mm. that took some time to probably have an effect on whether or not people are drinking and driving. They do now have an effect. You know, people mm. do not drive. People are, and obviously a lot of that has to do probably with the availability of Uber and Lyft and everything. But right. um, compared to when I was, you know, in college, people far fewer people drive drunk than than did,
0: you know, mm. 20 years also
1: ago. Also, the penalties that they hang over your head—the mm-hmm. fact that you well, lose sure. your license yeah. for months and everything like that—all of
0: those things contribute to both you not doing it and also you thinking I shouldn't yeah. be doing it. Like it, it has this educational, moral kind of effect that everybody thinks that this is bad and we see bad consequences, therefore it must be bad. So Mm -hmm. I really shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, Yeah, that's Um.
2: exactly right. The the one hard thing, though, is so where do we draw the line? So Mm. if I'm at a holiday party with my husband, and I have more than four right. drinks, am I not allowed to engage in sex with right. my husband, or mm-hmm. can he be, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what, when, where do we say that it's okay? Mm-hmm. Because... Yeah, some,
1: Michelle, some married couples only have sex when they're both drunk, so that's...
2: <laughs> <laughs> we might be cutting out a lot of the sexual activity among married couples, and I do not want to do that. I think
0: that would be... You do not consent day. to not being allowed to have sex with your husband after four yes, drinks.
2: I do not endorse that concept <laughs> overall. I think that um, you know, married married couples should be having sex as much as they want. So mm-hmm. I think that it's going to be a hard sell because you're now You know, what helps with the driving thing is these are people who are on public roads. Right. With sexuality, you're actually entering people's homes Homes and telling them them what they can do. You know, not that everyone has sex within a home, but, um, (laughs) you know, a large majority of this sex sex probably takes place. Happens
0: in homes and bedrooms. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So now you're entering their homes and you're saying you can't do this. Which obviously we have a lot of laws that are related. You know, I can't have a meth lab in my home, <laughs> right, yeah. right? So anyway, it's now intruding. Though it's it's mm. it's it's not. I'm not having sex in a public place. I'm having sex in my home. Right. So what right does the government have to say whether or not this can happen? I I just think it's it's business that I don't think the government would hmm. ever want to involve itself in. Mm. Um, it's way too complex ethically, but I think the big ethical question that comes from this study is how drunk is too drunk. And at least by the results in this study, people are saying I can be at the legal limit for driving, but I'm still okay to have sex.
0: Oh, so interesting and so complicated. Uh, we've gone way over our usual time for, for these interviews. So this is going to be a particularly long episode, but this was just so fascinating. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and and talking to us about all of this.
2: Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. It was great to be on the program, and good luck with everything. Thanks.
1: You know, Dr. Shine, if I was to rate and review this episode, even though I was on it, I would say it's a five-star.
0: Oh my God, this this must have been one of my favorite episodes ever. Yeah,
1: you really got into it. I could not get you off the phone with (laughs) Dr. Truman. I I
0: could have talked to her for another hour, seriously. I was
1: windmilling my hands around. (laughs) Please, we need to wrap up here.
0: I'm so glad we had the studio available for longer than usual. Yes. Because I did not want to end that You did not want to stop. No.
1: But like I mentioned, if you enjoyed it as much as we did, rate and review the podcast, wherever platform you listen to, iTunes, on Google Play, Stitcher, put a few stars, I thought today, me personally, a five mm-hmm. star. You do you think today was a five star episode? Yeah,
0: is there more than five? I think it's just five. Or just
1: whatever whatever the star max is. go to that level and let us know what you think about the show. Also, we have the Science Sex Podcast website, which we can we take your questions, your comments. So let us know what you thought about today's episode or past episodes, or you have a question for our next sex question palooza. Drop us a note there. The email is info at sciencesexpodcast dot com or the website is. ScienceSexPodcast That's
0: that's all I got.
1: You got you're you're, you're probably exhausted. <laughs> You've talked for so long. You need a break. All right, Doctor John. Until next time.
0: Bye. Bye. To connect with Doctor
2: Jana and Joe, go to the Science of Sex or follow us on Twitter at
0: Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.